You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Rodman Jenkins. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, Thank you so much, Phil, for uh, sharing with us. Phil is a member of our leadership team and also um, our prayer uh, ministry, and we are grateful for having your voice and your words and expressions with us today. Um, For those that are here for the first time, I'm one of the co-pastors of Teaching and Community. I've been here for the last two years, um, and it is a joy to be able to continue our sacraments Uh, of the church sermon series. We're actually in our sixth week. Um, We have one more week to go after today. Uh, Sacraments are ancient spiritual practices that the Christian church globally has been practicing for centuries. Uh, Reverend Josh and I have been going through this series, um, and we've been preaching on the following. Marriage, holy orders, anointing the sick, baptism, confirmation. Today I'll be preaching on confession. Next week we close things up with Reverend Josh and communion. Now I will say that um, I will give a content warning for those that have experienced um, any form of church trauma as it relates to maybe having to be forced into confessing something publicly. This may be extremely triggering for you, so I did want to share Um, that in terms of how important it is to take care of yourself uh, during this sermon in whatever way you feel comfortable. And definitely shout out to our virtual community who's joining us from all around the world today. So I'm sure, or let me just take a guess, um, how many, or ask the question, how many folks have experienced a sacrament during their lives? One of the seven. Yep, most of us in this room. Cool, cool, cool. Um, So we can relate to many of the sacraments. And these are some of the ways that we experience the reality and grace of God in our lives. So today's topic of confession, which is also referred to as penance and reconciliation, is said to be a sacrament of healing along with anointing the sick. So the long-held and widespread belief as it relates to confession is that Confession is necessary in order to receive favor from God, forgiveness from our sins, and this comes from scriptural interpretation. Now, when we think about confession and what it is, certainly it's seen as an admission of guilt, some sort of acknowledgement of sinfulness. In some religious contexts, confession is private, so it's between an individual and a priest or some other religious uh, person or clergy person, or it can be private in a sense that there's an individual confessing their sins or their shortcomings to God on their own. It can also be public where a community of faith makes a united declaration as part of a liturgy 
or it can be public in a sense where there is just one person confessing their faults between a congregation. In the New Testament, the public ministry of Jesus was prepared for by John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized individuals, and then the baptism was accompanied by a confession of sins. If we look at Matthew 3 and 6, we see these words. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Another example of this in scripture is 1 John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another understanding of confession has been connected to how people are saved or how they form a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are familiar with the ABCs of salvation. We found this to be very prevalent in um, evangelical settings, some Pentecostal settings, right? And um, if we think evangelical, we're thinking about um, those particular denominations that are really focused on bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, they believe that the Bible is without error, and um, they go about evangelizing, essentially. So with the ABCs of salvation, have any of you heard of this, ABCs? Yes, I see some head nods. All right, so A would be admit to God that you are a sinner, then you repent and you turn away from your sin. The B would be believe, believe that Jesus Christ is God's son and accept God's gift of forgiveness from sin. And then C is to confess, confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, it's interesting because even though we see confession discussed in various places throughout Scripture, there is no direct evidence that confession has to be specific or detailed or that it has to be made to a priest. We see this practice, however, showing up in the church's history Round about the 5th century, Roman bishops or priests would hear detailed confessions at the beginning of Lent. Detailed confessions. Can, can you imagine? I mean, I'm actually kind of thinking about Usher and these are my confessions. <laughs> you know, that type of scenario, right? So these confessions would happen at the beginning of Lent and then the Religious leaders would reconcile those who would come forward to repent on Holy Thursday to prepare them for their Easter worship service. So this practice went through a number of iterations throughout the church history and is still actually practiced today, privately and publicly, to God and to clergy, and viewed in many different ways. It's viewed as a way to obtain pardon from God, it's viewed as a way to receive conversion or salvation, to be corrected, and to receive spiritual healing. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade, and I received um, a number of sacraments. Um, and I really cannot remember my first confession or my first 
penance as we refer to it, it was probably somewhere around the age of, I don't know, seven or eight. I received my first communion in the second grade, so I think I was around that age. I'm assuming that the penance happened before then. I can't remember, but I have pretty vivid memories around the fourth grade of our class going off to church. The church, Catholic church, was across the street from the school, and all the kids would schlep over there for confession. And we would sit there in the pews, and one by one, the children would go to sort of the back of the altar uh, where the confessional booths were. So the confessional booths would be back there. They looked a little bit like this. And the students would enter from one side. The priest would be sitting on the other. And we were supposed to, anyone know about confession booths? Anybody? I see some head nods. Okay. So it was a little, little dark, a little scary. And, you know, we were just kids, but we were instructed on what to say. And our intro was, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been X number of months since my last confession. These are my sins. And then you began to list your sins out <laughs> before the priest. And honestly, I can't remember too much of what I shared with the priest. But one thing I know I said, I said I hit my sister Faith. Definitely, without a doubt. I'm sure every confession, that somehow showed up. And, you know, when it comes to confession, I mean, it, it's scary before a priest. It's awkward if you have to do it before people. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of embarrassment, right? And it's interesting because confession advances certain power dynamics, right? Um, it advances certain inequities. Um, it puts us in these categories of who's more perfect or who's more holy. Um, and then sometimes it's a bit frustrating because people might feel in some ways that they're really not holy enough for God's love, even after they may be absolved, just say, from a priest. Because after we confess, the priest based on what we shared, somehow gave us what exactly we were supposed to do in order to absolve ourselves, to be free of and rid of these sins. So then we would say, I don't know, like five Hail Marys and, and two Our Fathers, and then we were good. Um, but these, you know, the, these confessions can be, you know, in a place where people might feel like, is that enough? Well, maybe I should have done three Our Fathers you know, maybe I should have done more to really receive God's love. Was all of that really enough? And in some situations when the confession is public, it causes the community of faith to put certain sins over other sins, leaving the one who confesses as a social outcast, like Hester Prynne. Did anyone read Scarlet Letter. I remember reading it in 11th grade honors in Mrs. Berger's class, and this book really impacted me. Um, the protagonist in the novel, is written by Nathaniel Hemingway, um, was shamed and alienated because of adultery. And Hester had to wear a scarlet letter, an A, right in the front of her chest, sewn onto her clothing. And she was shamed and alienated by her community. I remember other people, primarily young women, who were wounded and isolated by being forced to publicly confess that they had gotten pregnant without being married. 
There were no other infractions, no other wrongdoings, no other transgressions that required this public humiliation in front of the congregation except the evidence of premarital sex. And in most cases, if not all of these hetero scenarios, it was the woman who had to make the public confession. The partner, somehow, was never there. And I remember a few years after college, at a business meeting, attempting to advocate for these women who had been embarrassed and shamed and publicly humiliated. And I remember trying to make a case, and I talked about, what about other people's sins? What, are, uh, what about other people's transgressions? And maybe this is not something we should be doing. And on the way home, my mother told me she was horrified. And in one instance, she was like, you go, girl. <laughs> and I will tell you that I was met with resistance, that I was gaslighted, in a sense. And I tried, but to no avail. And one of the remarks that I can remember coming to me was, well, Vanita, if you know things that people are doing, why don't you just come to us and let us know, and then we'll have them confess in front of the church. True story. So there was one such case where church members were allowed to comment after an individual expressed that they had gotten pregnant before being married, that they had premarital sex. And a number of people were making various comments. And then there was a church mother who was a no-nonsense type of person. She used to always be after us kids, telling us what we should and should not be doing. Stop running, stop talking, stop playing with each other, stop, you know, eating candy, right? She was that church mother. But this individual who had this type of reputation in this moment, in an unsuspecting manner, stood up and in a very emphatic voice recited the words of John 8 and 7. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. She used her voice to make a statement in solidarity and allyship that I believe was the most memorable and impactful and significant of that evening. Her words were taken from scripture when Jesus was confronted by teachers of the law and Pharisees. They had a woman that they, that they brought before Jesus and this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now I want you to put on your critical eyes and critical lenses at this time. What's wrong with the optics of this? They have, somebody said, where's the man? Thank you, Phil. You have one person <laughs> caught in the very act of adultery, but yet one person gets brought before Jesus. And they not only just brought her before Jesus to tell Jesus what was going on, they wanted her stoned to death. John 8, 6, and 11 says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one among, of, among you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, (laughs) making their way away, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Do not sin again. What if we can experience God through the sacrament of confession by practicing humility rather than humiliating others? A humility that allows us to be self-reflective and our full authentic selves to tell our own truth of the goodness and glory of God in our own lives and how we have been forgiven from everything that we have experienced. What about if we are humble enough to talk about God's grace, that God's grace is deep and far and wide? What if we claim a new way of being saved through confession, like Natalie R. Perkins and Hal Tossick highlight in their book, In Trembling Boldness, Wisdom for Today from Ancient Jesus People. This new way of being saved can allow us to make a profession of faith that connects to two verses in the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha are religious writings that didn't make it into the canon, that didn't make it into our Bible. And one is called the Gospel of Thomas. And there are some words that I feel relate to what I am attempting to get at today. In the Gospel of Thomas 70 and 1, it says, Jesus said, when you give birth to the one within you, that one will save you. And then there's another verse, those who know all but are lacking in themselves are lacking all things. Perhaps we can be saved by confessing who we are and who God has called us to be. Maybe this is how we experience the reality and grace of God in our lives. What if we confess the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that through God's love and even through our shortcomings and sin and shortfalls and all of our faults, that God still loves us, that we're already saved, that we're already healed, that we've already been forgiven. What if, as our theological uh, distinctive that we have here at Forefront, what if we can say that we believe in a just and generous God who has never been separated from us? And that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are so that we can change our minds about the goodness of God. Not so that God can change God's mind about our goodness. This is the good news. This is the gospel that God's justice is restorative, not punitive. That sin is systemic, not just individual. Yes, it's individual. And when we carry the weight of sin and shortcomings and faults without just releasing it and just giving it to God... That can be a heavy weight to carry. We shouldn't harm other people, intentionally or unintentionally. And we can always ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. But there's typically always an emphasis on individual sin as opposed to the systemic 
sinful structures that are always around us. What if we just shift our thinking and see sin as more systemic? This is the idea that there exists a larger social dimension of sin beyond just individual wrongdoing. What if systemic sin reflects the reality that once we know who we are, then it's important for us to take corporate responsibility for sinful actions that cause harm and originate from social systems? What if we see and address systemic sin in the data which show a much higher incidence of police violence upon black and brown bodies? What if we see and address systemic sin in the state of New York, which has not fully abolished slavery and extended workers' protections to incarcerated New Yorkers? What if we see systemic sin in the rights that are being taken away from trans and non-binary communities across this country? Maybe this is where we can find God. Maybe this is where we can find healing and grace. This is why we as a church continue to be involved in these types of initiatives so that we can make a difference, so that we can help change the trajectory of people's lives and the generations that are coming behind them. We want to be able to change their lives so that their lives are open to the love of God, so that they can extend this love of Jesus to not just themselves, but to the communities within which we serve. There's a Scottish proverb that says, confession is good for the soul. Perhaps what our souls really need is an experience with God through a confession where we declare who we are and whose we are. We are the beloved of God who can be agents of change, agents of systemic change through our collective responsibility, acknowledging that through our gifts and skills and abilities, we can do the exceedingly abundant above all we could ever ask or think with the community working together. So I shared a number of different stories of women throughout this particular sermon. I talked about Hester Prynne. I talked about the sole individual, the woman who was brought before Jesus, caught in the very act of adultery. And I talked about the number of women who have had to publicly confess in front of their communities of faith. What if instead of these individuals being publicly shamed and the focus and attention being only on these individuals, what if that was shifted more to corporate responsibility where the oppression of these women was addressed? where the systemic structures that isolated them and shamed them and kept them away from the community within which they loved, what if we addressed the oppression rather than just those individuals? Maybe they would have been able to continue their lives and move forward. And I must say that in some instances, I know of people who didn't attend church anymore because of instances like this. However, Hester Prynne, In the novel, she was able to be empowered and move forward with her life. And I'm assuming that when Jesus told that woman that he didn't condemn her, maybe she was able to move forward with her life, right? But what about us addressing the systemic oppression 
as opposed to us just looking at this individual, these individuals where they received community scorn. I believe that all of us can continue to move forward, sometimes in trembling boldness, affirming who God called us to be and believing that this sacrament of confession can be a sacrament of renewal, it can be a sacrament of healing, of restoration, of rededication, where we acknowledge who we are and all that God is doing in our lives. Maybe this sacrament of confession can lead us to a place where we believe that God continues to give us life individually and collectively, and that life is an abundant life through Jesus Christ. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. So. At this time, we will be sharing in communion together. Um, those of you who have joined us online, you can gather whatever you are gathering for communion. It all honors God. Here at the roulette, we will be uh, serving you communion. The communion uh, juice is alcohol-free in solidarity with those who might be in recovery and also so our children can receive communion as well. And we do have a gluten-free wafer. I'm going to ask that after you receive your communion that you would hold it and then we'll all receive together. Everyone is welcome to come to our communion table. All are welcome to come at this time. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.